This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Hello and welcome to the Asian Cinema Film Club. This is the second part of our two-part bonus episode series and we're going to be wrapping up our top 50 Asian cinema. On the first half we obviously looked at my own 25 picks for the list and on this episode we turn the focus over to my co-host and a good friend Mr. Stephen Palmer who's obviously going to share with us tonight his top 25 and uh Together, we're going to put both lists together and we will obviously be posting on the site our full 50 uh, top Asian cinema films. So it's uh, going to be kind of interesting because obviously long-time listeners would know from the show, both myself and Stephen, we, we have kind of different tastes. Uh, we obviously like a lot of the same films. At the same time, the films we gravitate towards tend to be uh, a little different from each other. So this is going to be interesting to obviously see what you come up with. Stephen, I mean... Is there anything you want to obviously sort of insights you want to give us? Any sort of like science of how you formed your list or was it just uh, Yeah, okay. So firstly, you did me a favour because at least six of the films on your list were in my short list. And because you went first, yeah. I got the um I got the bonus of being able to slide in six more films. Um so what I did was I looked at all my DVDs and Blu-rays of Asian films and made a mountain on the floor. And as I put them back up again, I cast off, I put to the side the ones I thought would make my list, thinking I'd get about 25, and I had about 70. Um, so, yeah, it was really hard, and I had to set myself some rules. Like, on the whole, no director getting more than one. I think that stood up, whereas, uh, which isn't what you did. So our rules are slightly different, but um, yeah, I've tried. It, it, it's it's really hard. I mean, I could have had ten Stephen Chow films in there, and that would have been a very strange top twenty-five. Um, there is one thing I noticed both of us have not got in our lists, but I'll wait to the end, maybe okay. if we remember to talk about it. <laughs> the rather shocking omission, but hopefully, what we've got between us is a. Certainly a mix of genres, um, and it would be a, a worthwhile 50 for anybody, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm excited to see what obviously made your list, and I mean, should we kick it off then? Let's, uh, yeah. Should we uh, cue Yellow Pearl and begin the countdown? <laughs> <laughs> um, so kicking off your list at number 25, you have... I've Miss Granny, okay. which which is a fairly recent Korean film. Um, what was it? 2014. Um, which is sort of one of these sort of feel-good Korean films that they put out at times. Basically, it's a story of a 70-year-old Korean woman who suddenly finds herself in the body of her 20-year-old self in the modern day and basically gets a chance to sort of reset some of the things maybe that had happened in her life previously um it's a it's a comedy romance with the sort of icky sort of romantic things that all time travel movies suffer with i give you um 
Back to the Future. <laughs> it's got something <laughs> similar to that going on. Um, it's also music, cool, sort of. It's got music numbers in it, and it's absolutely charming and wonderful, um, headed by the performance of Shim Yun Kyung, who is an actress I adore. But this, this film's amazing. And it was so popular out in the, out certainly in the Asian world, that there is a Vietnamese remake, a Filipino remake, and a really rather good mainland Chinese remake. Um, so if you could handle a bit of a time travelly, body swappy, um, romantic comedy with singing, you'll love this. I somehow sense it's more of a film for me than you. But <laughs> I'm always but. interested in letting. I'm always interested in seeing something, di- something a bit different outside of the usual sort of fare. Um, and certainly it's an interesting concept. I, I was obviously aware of the Philippine remake, which has sort of come out this year or last, I believe. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it reminds me of uh, Vice Versa, the Judge uh, the Judge Reynolds movie. So I'm kind of Oh, Judge, uh, yeah, Vice Versa, big um, 30 going on 13 or whatever that one with Jennifer Garner was. A yeah, 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 yeah. So... But, but 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 it's better than all of them. Well, maybe okay. it's not better than Big, but um, it's just absolutely charming. And um, I remember when it came out in 2014, 2015, it was my film of the year. So that, that I voted for an Eastern Kick. So frankly, I didn't really have much choice to, other than put it on my list. <laughs> and I thought about it. Okay, so that's number 25. 24. I have um, P Mac which is the only Thai film on my list, although there could have been a couple of others. Um, it's a comedy horror romance. <laughs> it's, um, it's based on a very popular Thai sort of horror folklore um, of a uh, main Akhra Kanong, which is the root of about five or six films that I've seen and probably hundreds of Thai movies. It's the, it's the common horror trope of a, of a ghost woman, basically. Um, what makes this one different is, is the comedy. Um, it stars a bunch of guys that are in quite a few films from this period from Thailand. If you can handle fairly slapstick not gross out but unsubtle humor it's quite postmodern um but it's genuinely got a lot of heart to it um the lead pair um mario maura and davika whom are gorgeous and just a fantastic pairing but it sort of takes a it takes a fairly common horror trope, adds a comedy spin to it, adds a romance spin to it, and it's hugely entertaining. And I believe it's still Thailand's highest grossing home created film of all time. So, again, another one I'm not expecting you to know of, um, but hugely entertaining. At number 23, we have my first Hong Kong movie, which is Her Fatal Ways. Um, now, I chose this because I do love a, a non-sequitur um, comedy film from Hong Kong. Um, but this one's got two extra special moments. In it. She's got three things in it that make it rather special. Um, firstly, it's directed by um, Albert Chung. Yeah, it is Al- Alfred Chung, who is a familiar face 
in front and behind the camera in um, Hong Kong movies in sort of the early 90s. Um, it stars Carol Dolo Cheng, um, who is one of the sort of the big comedy figures. I mean, she's absolutely brilliant in this. Basically, the story is she is a mainland Chinese um, film, uh, police officer who's come over, I think there's a drug deal or something she's got involved with to come and help the uh, the local Hong Kong police. Um, it's wacky stuff. It's in sort of the Stephen Chow mode. She's brilliant. Um, it's a, you know, it's a fish out of water kind of comedy. But what makes it extra special is that it's um, it's one of the first films that I felt showed a sort of uh, pre handover panic going on. So as 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 we speak, we're having a bit of a Brexit moment here in the UK. Um, but back in the day, Hong Kong was having its own issues where it was about to be handed over to uh, mainland China. And this film, although is ridiculous and stupid and just slapstick fun, it also speaks to those fears of what's going to happen when we're part of China. I don't think we're going to have as, as riveting a f- amount of films come out of uh, Brexit as, as we did out of the Chinese hand- handover, certainly. Well, I hope not. I hope not. But, <laughs> but yeah, that, that kind of that, that sort of end of the cycle, the end of the era sort of thing going on is, is definitely there. At 22, I have Wuxia, although I think it's called Dragon over here in the UK. Uh, Dragon. Is it Dragon, is it? Yeah, okay. it's, it's bizarre because it's spelled Dragon. Uh, but it's um, the, the actual pronunciation is Dragon, um, which is a film I'm very excited to see on your list because this is something of a underappreciated gem, especially for martial arts films. Um, but I'm, I'm going to let you do your introduction before I fanboy all over this one. So okay, right. So why do I love? Um... I'm going to call it Wuxia. Yeah. Um, why do I love it? Because I love Peter Chan. I think Peter Chan is one of the finest. Um... I can't remember if he's Chinese or Hong Kong, but he does some of the most beautiful films um, I've ever seen. It's got Donnie Yen in his most outstanding acting role ever. It's got my favourite Japan-Taiwanese actor, Ain Takeshi Kaneshiro, in it. And it's a kind of postmodern version of the one-armed swordsman, I suppose. Um, It's equal parts... um, sort of postmodern kung fu movie with a little bit of crime scene investigate sort of thing going on um it's just it's just beautiful but it's got a heart to it as well um and it's just a lot of sort of kung fu movies that we watch are silly not necessarily in a bad way, but you don't want to apply too much logic to it. This one just sort of takes it all and polishes it up. And I guess it's a companion piece in a way to something on your list, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where a sort of bit of modern and Western spick and span and polish was put onto a, onto what could have been a fairly standard movie. So, um, fanboy away. Oh, yeah, Dragon. I mean, this is a sort of martial arts film which falls into that sort of higher echelon category and I think for it's a Don Yen movies this one's like easily comparable to Jet Li's Fearless um it's a very sort of art house sort of kung fu movie it's as you said before it's not just uh, about chop socky antics there's a real sort of story here and we've got, obviously got the the idea of this fearful warrior who's decided to put his 
his weapons to ground and, you know, live out this peaceful life. At the same time, he's got this detective who just won't quit. And you feel that it would be a much shorter movie if he'd just, like, given up, given up when he's supposed to. But he's, uh, Takeshi Garo's, uh character, this detective he plays, is just absolutely unrelenting in uncovering the secret that Donnie character is obviously hiding. Um, it's also interesting you, in fact, you draw the comparisons to one on Swordsman, because obviously Jimmy Wang Yu, uh, the one on Swordsman himself, turns up as the master. And the film itself is just so stylishly shot. The, the soundtrack through to the actual fight choreography. I think this was really when we started taking notice of Donnie Yen. If, for those of us who weren't obviously like big sort of Hong Kong action fans, because uh, obviously for people like myself, we would obviously have seen him in like Once Upon a Time in China 2. And we obviously got very excited in Hero when we obviously got to see that rematch between Jet Li and Donnie Yen uh, at the opening of that film. So, yeah, Dragon's, uh, I, for some reason, he never seems to have the high profile that it that it, it sort of deserves. A lot like a lot of uh, Donnie Yen's films, and I think uh, really Ip Man is the one I think most people sort of assume as being sort of like his best of the highbrow pictures, but Dragon's an absolutely astounding picture and definitely one worth checking out. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing it, it's contemporaneous with, with the first Ip Man film. Um, and basically, I mean... Let's be honest, Donnie Yen up to then was not known for his acting. He's an incredible martial artist, um, incredible action director. Um, but both Ip Man and this film put him to a different level, I think. And, you know, when he's coping against somebody like um, Kanashiro and, you know, coming out at least equal, I think that's that's a film worth watching. But, yes, I think I think what we've got here is is. This is this is the kung fu film for people like me. <laughs> okay, at twenty one we have a ridiculous film that I adore immensely. It's Therme Rome. Um, it's a Japanese adaptation of a popular manga. Um, the conceit of this film is that um, in Roman times, um, a designer of Spa, uh, of waterwear, of spas, of baths, called Lucius, played by uh, Hiroshi Abe, is sent forward in time to modern Japan and sort of flips back and forth in time. You can see I like time travel and takes the things that he sees in the present day back to his time and kind of reinvents things. Um, it's ridiculous it's ridiculous in the sense that it just accepts the fact that all romans look like japanese people and he and that all the japanese are japanese and he still calls them flat faces and and vaguely potentially racist things like that but it just it just accepts all these ridiculous things it also looks at the japanese obsession there is a link between japan and Roman times in the sense that water and bathing is a very important part of their of their social rituals, very different to modern day in the West, where we're much more solitary about these things. But going to an onsen or, or and such like is, is a big deal in Japan, as the equivalent was in Roman times. But it's got Hiroshi Abe in it. It's got um, it's got uh, Aoeto, who we probably know best as. Azumi from the Azumi films. Um, it's got a sequel, which is nearly as good, but not worthwhile of getting on this list. But it's a one, it's probably quite hard to find. I've never seen it released in the UK. Or I have seen it shown at 
various festivals. If you ever get a chance, anything with Hiroshi Abe is worth seeing. Um, it's not many six foot tall Japanese actors, and he's one of the better ones. But it's just it just plays it so straight, but it's mental at the same time. Okay, next up is the most modern film on my list, number 20, another Japanese film. Um, I had to put this one on the list because it was the film of the year at Eastern Kicks last year, and it was overwhelmingly so. Um, I haven't seen anybody who's seen it that hasn't been absolutely blown away by it. It's called One Cut of the Dead. Um, Without being too spoilerific... It is a film which starts off like a low-budget zombie film, which is always good, but ends up as a sort of a comedy treatise on how difficult it is to make independent films these days, or at all even. It's crazy, it's wacky, and it's got more imagination. It's got an opening shot of about 30 minutes, which is ostensibly a single take, although it's not really, but you know, it has, has that look on it. And and you think you're watching this low-budget zombie film, although there's some weird things go on, and you think, oh, that's a bit odd, why did that happen? And then it all makes sense, and it's brilliantly put together. So the first act is this zombie movie, the second and third acts are the are the actually what was going on, and then seeing the film again from another viewpoint. It's got more imagination, it's little finger than most modern films have. And the reason it's really important is, is that Japanese cinema gets a lot of crap these days because it doesn't have the, the, that kind of imagination and intelligence that it may have done in the past. Um, so most mainstream films are manga adaptations, even though I've just put one at the list below it, but they're big budget manga adaptations. Um, even people like Takashi Miike are Half his films he makes are these big budget films and the sort of the days of his imagination are not gone, but they're, they're not, not front and center. And, you know, quite, you know, it's, it's just important to show that Japanese cinema still has got it and it's fully available in the UK. I suspect in the USA as well. Really, really highly recommended. Um, as always with these lists, you always, you always have a little feared of contemporary films, but I think this one might last. Lost the age. Interesting to see. Um, it's one I've still yet to see, but then again, I'm still yet to catch up on Train to Busan. So it's, this is this thing. I know that it's obviously been a wide critical acclaim, and as you said, Eastern Kicks have given it their seal of approval, which is always a key thing to see. Um, and the fact it won so universally uh, makes me very excited to to see it when it eventually filters through to the one of the uh, streaming services, which hopefully it will soon, as I think that's when people are really going to start picking it up, is when it hits the streaming services now, and I think this yeah. is a great thing, uh, the current climate, is the fact that we've got the streaming services so willing to pick up things like Train to Busan, The Wailing, and really sort of push them, I mean, we obviously saw it with uh, The Night Wait, The Night Comes for Us, which Netflix obviously picked up, and just did absolute gangbusters from like the moment it was released. So hopefully it turns up soon. Hopefully, I mean it's been um, it's been released by Third Window Films here in the UK, which I think is now part of Arrow, isn't it? Did they They're buy them? fueled by Arrow. It's it's much like um, like Terracotta. They Arrow have done a deal with both Third Window Films and Terracotta to fuel their services. I believe is the way that they put it. So it's a little confusing 
how it how it all works, but the fact that we've still got the free labels there, that it's not the case where we had Mutasen where they just pretty much just vanished overnight. They just got they just couldn't uh, get the key titles they needed to stay afloat. And the fact that we've now got three of the big labels just coming together and you know sort of uniting to make sure that we've got this influx still of interesting titles still. Yeah, and the good news is, is that, that, that that it should get into streaming via Amazon at some stage, which is what, what Arrow tend to do, albeit with an extra subscription. But yes, love it. Um, so number nineteen is probably the first of my real art house choices. <laughs> um, it's Kim Ki Duk's Three Iron. Um, now Kim Ki Duk is a really interesting South Korean director who is pretty, um, uh, what's the word? He's, he's very prolific. Um, I'm not sure all his films are for everybody. Um, they can be quite extreme. They can be quite obtuse. And some of them really quite upsetting. Um, yeah, I think he tends to make a film a year, something like that. Anyway, Three Iron's a bit different. Three Iron is a, uh, a romantic drama between a woman and uh, a sort of a drifter, a young drifter, and they engage in an affair. Um, but he doesn't speak. In fact, barely anybody speaks in this whole film. It's um, You don't need to worry about subtitles for this one. It's dreamy and artsy, and it's just a work of, of quiet magnificence. Um, it has got some violence in it, so if you're scared of golf clubs and golf balls... That's where the that's that, that's where the that's where it comes from in the title. So there is a bit of violence in it. Um, I mean, I would recommend Kim Ki Duk to most people. Um, I guess his most famous film is probably going to be Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring, which, like this one, is um, is quite atypical for his work. Other people know The Isle, Samaritan Girl. Um, oh, what's that recent one? Is it Mobius or something? Mobius, which yeah. A bit, which is a bit rough. Um, but this is this is a beautiful thing, and it's like a, I'd say it's like a sort of a gateway film to Kinky Duck's work because it is, although it sounds weird, is utterly enchanting. Oh, unquestionably so. I think Three Irons, as you said, it's a little bit of an art house sort of picture in its setup, and it's a very surprising film to obviously see from Kim Kai uh, Duck, who's one of those directors, much like uh, Shinsuke to Sakamoto, whose work I step in and out of, but I'm not, I'm not in the position where I have to like see every single film that that comes across. He's, I think he's one of those directors. I think I would recommend to um, our good friend uh, friend Zoe over at Silver with Shotgun because I think there's a lot of films he makes, such as like you know Bad Guy in the Isle and Mobius especially that I think uh, certainly appeal to her sort of love of the grotesque and extreme. Uh, but yeah, he's he's frequently had films that have been picked up for UK distribution, and he's certainly got a little bit of a cult following. But Brian's is real curiosity, and I would say it's more accessible than Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring. Um, even though it it looks a little art house and sounds a little art house when you read the description, I think it's still very accessible and um, one worth checking out. And if you enjoy this, then also check out Samaritan Girl as well. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. I mean, I've only seen about about a third of his films, but I tend to enjoy them. But um, yeah, this one, this one's the gateway. Absolutely. Samaritan Girl's another one. Um, Mobius is one for Zoe. 
Okay, right. Next up, what number are we at? Um, number 18. So I was very lucky in in my role as as a occasional interviewer for Eastern Kicks to meet the director of this movie, Shinobu Yaguchi. But and I was really lucky because I love pretty much every one of his films, but in particular this film. This film was the, the 2004 comedy Swing Girls. Now, uh Mr. Yaguchi, he makes basically comedy films that are fairly broad, usually about some group of underdogs or a single underdog that fights against the norm and the fact that they're a little bit weird and succeed at the end. And this is no different. This is about a group of pretty ragtag high school girls that via reasons I'm not going to go into, end up becoming a big band, i.e. saxophones and trumpets and drumming, and there's some guitars in there, and they enter a competition, a school, a school music competition, as this big band. I have barely explained it at all. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, it also stars one of my favourite actresses, Yuri Ueno, who um, we have talked about in the past with uh, with the turtles being surprisingly fast swimmers. But this film knocks that one into a cocked hat. Um, my signed DVD by the director is one of my <laughs> most treasured items. Um, but yes, hi- highly recommended. If it's not this one, then you could also go for Water Boys, which is the film he did before this, which is basically a similar story, except it's a bunch of schoolboys who learn to be synchronized swimmers, believe it or not, and actually ended up creating a very popular TV program as well out of it. But yes, um, Swing Girls is this choice. Next up. Oh, uh, so I, was, I was just about to say, I'm not surprised to see Swing Girls on your list because I think the first. Four or five episodes of this show, we think we talked about Swing Girls pretty much non-stop. So, um, it's definitely one that I think we're going to be talking about in a future episode of the show. It's, certainly the concept sounds, sounds awesome. And, um, I've seen looking on the letterbox here, there's a review where someone's put, uh, Swing Girls and then, that, then can, then beside it, Whiplash. So they preferred it more than Whiplash, but I don't know if it's a good comparison to compare it to Whiplash or not, but. It's a very different film to Whiplash, but <laughs> I guess about jazz. <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah. So the, this one won't win any Oscars, but it gets on our list, which makes it more important. <laughs> okay, um, at number seventeen, I had to have a Mako Kaji film, um, and this one I have a poster from this film in my living room. So the fact it wasn't on my original list was a bit shameful. But I made amends by making it in at number 17. And it's Lady Snowblood, which I suspect is a film that Elwood has actually seen finally on my list. (laughs) Oh, no, you saw Wushu, haven't you? I've seen Um, a few things in your list so far. It's just not not all. uh, It's always nice to, like, come to these lists and realise, you know, you've still got hills to climb. You've got things to see. There's nothing worse than being involved in any field and think that, you know, I've got nothing left to see. I've, I'm, I'm at the end of the world and it's like there's nothing left to conquer so it's always nice to have uh, have things to go and find even if you are sort of in the depths of the field There's always, it's, I think that's always the nice thing about doing this list is that it finds things you might not even think about but yeah, Lady Snowblood is is really 
great. I mean, it's obviously a key influence for Kill Bill's The Bride. Um, the film itself is... It's a right. It's kind of a mixture of pop samurai and a little bit of grindhouse in there, and it's uh yeah, it's certainly one of the more interesting sort of pop samurai movies out there. But I'm gonna you know let you let you explain. No, no, I mean it's a this, so. yeah, it, it, it's a revenge th- it's a revenge thriller, like you say, with with pop samurai elements and grindhouse elements, and it's got a rather it, it jumps backwards and forwards in time. There's a there's a training montage. There's um. It's definitely it's not it's not it's not it's not a pink film, but it's got um it's got elements of exploitation about it. I think I guess we said that in the Grindhouse. Um, but she's brilliant. I mean, she's always brilliant. Mika Kaji's always brilliant. Um, and this I would say is probably her most well-known role outside of of us cultists. Um, but it's a yeah, it's a it's it's probably my probably my favourite sword-based film. He says, wondering that he's going to pick another one further up. But no, no, it's um, definitely my favourite in that regard. Yeah, nothing wrong with Miko. Miko is like, I think she was on our little, we had a rush, a Mount Rushmore of just like awesome Asian actresses. She's like definitely got a place on there. I mean, just her filmography is just absolutely incredible. And it's funny you should say that that you chose Lady Snowblood as like the poster of choice for her, from her filmography. Because I, I mean, for myself, I would have gone like Pimble. You know, Prisoner Scorpion or like um, Stray Cat Rock. Um, just especially the first one, Delinquent Girl Boss. I've always thought that had like the coolest poster with her as the uh, biker chick. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, there's a ton of them. I would have the whole room, but then that would get a bit freaky and <laughs> creepy. But yeah, no, I, I, I've, got, I've got a lovely poster of her in the, in the snow. Um, yeah, love it. Love it. Everyone should watch it. No argument. <laughs> right what's next ah okay number 16 yes so number 16 i have a korean film called windstruck and it's hard for me to talk about this film but without giving away a film later on but it's a it's a it's another south korean romantic comedy aren't they all everybody from me um and it's the first of a couple of films that star jin ji hyun also known as jiana jun in the west um it's uh, and it's by um, Kwak Jae Young. Kwak Jae Young was an old school Korean director that suddenly had a uh, a jump start late in his career. Well, not that I guess when was this? About two thousand and four, when he made a film called My Sassy Girl. But we won't talk about My Sassy Girl right at this moment. This is like a his follow up to it. Um, it's a love letter to his actress. She's pretty much in every scene. The camera's centred around her. It's the most ridiculous mix of genres and styles. Everything we've always talked about, Korean movies having genre shifts and tone shifts, this film's the poster boy for it. I've talked about this before when we, um, in our The Classic episode. But basically what happens is a, a policewoman meets a trainee teacher they have some shenanigans they fall in love they go on holiday together the guy nearly dies but don't worry because five minutes later he does die and then she mourns for him um so there's the whole uh 
Eastern philosophy thing of about uh, a dead spirit being around 49 days to finish its um, business and then goes off to heaven or wherever. Um, so it kind of feeds on that. It's um, it's sentimental. It's gooey. It's random. And I just adore this film. But I have to say it was a huge flop in Korea, but bizarrely was incredibly successful in Japan, which is why the third film in the, sort of the, the trilogy of My Sashi Girl and Windstruck is actually a Japanese film, although it is directed by uh, Kwak Jae-yong, which is my cyborg girl. But um, this to me is it's just a film I, I, I watch regularly because of its two hours randomness. And it makes me cry sometimes. Right, number 15 is a film we've already spoken about on the podcast. Um, I had to have a Choi Hark film. I actually swapped it out because it was something else but for another Choi Hark film. And I thought, no, you know what? What do I actually really, really love? And what I really, really love is Peking Opera Blues, which is, um, as we talked about before, it's kind of a a period wacky comedy with three strong leading ladies, including the goddess herself, Bridget Lim. Um, in a semi cross dressing y sort of role, which, which make her, uh, uh, um, sorry, which she kind of made her thing. But it's just hugely entertaining. It's got a bit of action in there, a bit of comedy in there. Um, and I think it's the best showcase for Choi Hark's work. I was going to choose Once Upon a Time in China too, but then I thought, I love all the Once Upon a Time in China films. I can't choose a favourite, so I'm going to choose none of them. <laughs> That's only one way of approaching the the problem. Um, yeah, I mean, we obviously we've talked about uh, picking up for blues again. It's one of those wonderful films where we have a have three uh, leading ladies just doing an absolutely great job. I mean, obviously, Roy Trill being the other example, but yeah, Bridget Lynn heading up uh, the cast, and then we've also got Sally Yu and Cherry Shang as well. Um, it's a fun film. It's as I say, it's that sort of genre hopping that we only sort of really see within Asian cinema, especially done well. And I know it's her favourite Quentin Tarantino, which is how I sort of stumbled across it. I believe it's on the Rolling Thunder uh, pitch introduction of Chunking Express that he mentioned how much he loves Peking Off Blues. And, and uh, that was, uh, was sort of what led me to it. But yeah, definitely one that's uh, worth checking out. But I mean, you can obviously go back and uh, check out our archive episode on that one and see what we made of it, definitely. Excellent. Right. Number 14. I'm not sure if you'd have seen this, Elwood, but I, I hope you do have. And if you haven't, we're going to be covering it on the podcast, I'm pretty sure. Um, this is Lee Myung-se's Duelist. And not The Duelist, as I wrote down, so drop, drop, the, drop the The. Um, <laughs> it's a... I don't really know how to explain this. So on one hand, it's a Joseon-era Korean period action drama. Sort of like a Korean martial arts film, if you like. So um, I, I do love a Joseon era Korean film. So that's with all the men with the big hats and lots of handbooks and things like that going on. Except it's kind of not. It's filmed in a very modern style with modern Western music. The fighting is more like dance. Occasionally the film will veer off into Benny Hill like comedy. Um it, it exists in a completely different, um, a different set of rules than any other martial arts film you'd have ever seen. 
it's not as crazy as something that's as genre busting as a uh, Haosu. It's it's a little more uh, grounded than that. It's got a fantastic cast. One of my favourite actresses um, is in it, um, Haji Wan. Um, but she's only part of a of a much bigger picture. Um, I remember when I watched it the first time, I couldn't quite understand what I'd seen. It's probably taken me about five watches to even get a, a full understanding of it. But, but it's 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 a visual treat. And yeah, I guess this is another one of my highbrow martial arts films. <laughs> I'd say a little comparison to the Grandmaster, uh, obviously Wonko was a version of Ip Man. So it's definitely got that that going for it. And it's one I've yet to see, and it, especially because there's not a huge amount being revealed on Letterboxd when I look at the reviews. A lot of Korean reviews, which obviously I can't read because I don't speak Korean. Uh, so definitely one that be interested in looking in, especially because it's a unique take on martial arts uh, fight choreography. As you said, the fact it's more, sort of, more like dance than traditional uh, combat makes it sound really kind of interesting to see, so we'll definitely have to check that one out. No, we'll definitely do that on the podcast. Right, next up is number 13, Taiwanese film called Secret. Now, um, for those of us in the West, we know Jay Chu as the guy that played um, the Green Hornet sidekick Kato in that fairly fair to middling um, recent version of the green hornet that was made um by oh the french director michel gondry and i don't know how he came across in that in the east he is one of the biggest stars in the world he's one he's probably the biggest male pop star in asia um he's one of these ridiculous people who's incredibly talented at everything he throws himself at and Secret is his 2007 um, directorial debut. He stars in it. Um, he stars in it alongside luminaries like our friend Anthony Wong and uh, Gui Lan Mei, who's another popular face from, from mainland Chinese, uh, Taiwanese cinema, sorry. Um, and it's another time travel story. What <laughs> <laughs> <A> surprise. <laughs> I didn't realise didn't realize I was so addicted to it. Um, yes, so um, basically a... A guy falls in love with a girl. Um, music is very important to them. But then it turns out that she's not quite who and where she says she is. I don't want to say any more to spoil it. It's utterly beautiful. It's helped by the fact that Jay Chu is a musician first and, first and um, foremost. So music plays an important part in it. The score is beautiful. So it's one of the few scores that I own. Um, it, it, it's is it a time travel story? Is it a ghost story? Again, I don't want to ruin it. Um, Anthony Wong playing against type, I suppose, as um, as father, who's he's really good as well. Uh, it, it, it's hard for me to talk about because I really don't want to spoil the story. Um, really, really love this film, um, but I think it's one that might be hard for people in the West to actually get to see. It's interesting, obviously, the fact that J. Cho played the Cato role in The Green Hornet, because obviously that was a role in the original series played by Bruce Lee. Um, and the man we now obviously remember as this legend, and certainly in, when he was obviously in Hong Kong making his, his films there, 
he was an absolute legend and yet in the West he was just, you know, reduced to the psychic role. So it's kind of funny that Jay Charles career mirrored Bruce Lee's in that way, but I think he's very underrated in a way. I mean he's done some very interesting movies and some not so great movies like Initial D. But um definitely got some interesting films in his filmography, like Curse of the Golden Flower, very underrated. Kung Fu Dunks a lot of fun as well, but um yeah. He's, I mean, I've yet to see The Secret, so I will add that to the list as well. Yeah, be very careful. There's another Korean film called The Secret, which is a completely different film. Okay. But this, yeah, this one's a Taiwanese film, Secret. Okay, number 12. So, Elwood, you picked Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. I did. your Park Chan-wook. Well, did you pick a couple of Park I Chan-wook? Picked, I had two, um, because I had joined Security Area. That's and I had, right. uh, had Lady Vengeance as my, my pick of the Vengeance trilogy. So... I went more obvious, and my number 12 pick is Old Boy. And the reason I picked Old Boy was I remember watching it for the first time. I remember, I can't even remember why I picked it up. Someone must have recommended it to me, but I didn't know anything about it. And I got a, a, a DVD came from some Asian DVD company, and I watched it over a Christmas um over Christmas holiday, one evening in the Christmas holidays, and I watched it on my laptop, and I was utterly blown away by it. it it's it's the I didn't really know Park Chan-wook then, and probably it was my gateway to him. That's how I found out about some of his other films. Um, it, the story is fantastic. The acting, Choi Min-suk, obviously, it, we, you know, is, is, is one of the great Korean actors. Um, it's got brilliant scenes i remember the scene where it just shows the passing of time when he's stuck in that hotel room so sorry i guess everybody i'm assuming everybody knows what the story is a businessman gets kidnapped for a number of years just kept in a hotel room is fed but gassed every night when he escapes he has to find out who um who kidnapped him and more importantly why and yeah, it's uh, it's probably famous for the scene where Choi Min Suk eats an octopus, um, which is a bit stomach churning. It's probably famous for the um, scene, which is sort of double dragon style fighting scene, <laughs> um, which the Daredevil TV show tried to one up a couple of times, but really didn't do anything any close to it. And it's got a really freaking disturbing ending and a little bit of an open ending as well. Um I just I just love this film. I just remember being blown away by it. And I agree with you about Lady Vengeance. Lady Vengeance is good, but as I said in our last episode, I feel like I need a shower after watching that. I don't feel the same about this film, so that's why I've picked Old Boy. That's surprising you say that, especially with how this film ends. It's rather interesting the ending and I, and I, it made me all the more interesting when the Spike Lee version came out, which I actually enjoyed. It's not as good as the original and I think the original is much like Bon Royale, it's a gateway film for access to Asian cinema. I think there's a lot of people out there who don't watch Asian cinema and they definitely don't watch subtitle movies, and yet they've seen Old Boy. And it's really helped by the fact he's got such good pacing, he's got really strong action, and it's got those sort of standout moments, shall we say, uh, that make it such an interesting film to see. And it's interesting as well when we obviously look at the scenes we're shot by here in the West and the scenes which more shocking to people in the East. Uh, so just like the squid sequence. I mean, the squid sequence is really just to show that he's been so detached from society for so long, he's basically become feral. 
yet. So he's just there having his lunch. And here in the West, it's like, oh, my God, he's, like, eating the squid, like, head first, and the tentacles are over his face. It's like, oh, my God, this is so shocking. Yet, as Park Chan Wu says in, like, the making of the documentary, that there's nothing to a, an Eastern director. We wouldn't think anything of asking an actor to do that. And an actor would never question it. So where we find it really shocking to these, it's like, oh, it's just... It represents something completely different. I thought that was really interesting about it. Tartan Media actually put out a really cool box set of this where you've got a hammer bottle opener, which is obviously the weapon of choice here. The whole hallway sequence is, oh, it's just astounding. It's, I think if we were talking like our top 50 moments in Asian cinema, I think that hallway sequence would just hands down be in there because it's just, so beautifully shot, and it just really sums up what the Ventures trilogy was about, where violence happens, but it's just the most beautiful violence you're ever going to see committed to film. And, of course, it serves no good end in the end. <laughs> Let's never forget that. Um, yeah, so that's old boy number 12. Number 11, I think it's another film you probably won't have seen, Elwood. Um, it's a Taiwanese film called Starry, Starry Night. And, yes, that is after the, um, the Vincent van Gogh painting. Um, so just sort of give some context here. Um, there is a very famous Taiwanese illustrator called Jimmy Lau. And Jimmy Lau, um, he basically does, I'll call them children's books, but, uh, but they're picture books, not just for children, but for adults as well. And they have inspired a couple of films, uh, well, more than, more than just this film. Um, so Turn Left, Turn Right which is um, a film I have spoken about before on the uh, on the podcast, which I'll probably talk again, and a Tony Lung starring Sound of Colours, which is less good, but still reasonable. Story Story Night is based on one of these books. Um, it's a story about a young girl whose parents basically split up. She runs away with a friend, to go back to visit her grandfather who lives up in the uh, up in the mountains which is the only place she was happy um well she goes back her grandfather dies she goes back to to visit where they live so she can feel happy again um it's a story about childhood about growing up it's got the wonderful Zhu Zhao um who people may know as the little boy in CJ7 Stephen Chow's of last hurrah of his of his main filmmaking um although she is a little girl she played a little boy in that film she's a little girl here um it's a story yeah it's a story about growing up it's a story about dealing with divorce it's a story about friendship and leaving the child world and starting on your journey into embarking into the adult world um it's a glorious glorious thing um if it's got any other if another film that we might want to link with it it's a bit like amelie i suppose in the sense that uh xiaomei the, the 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 young girl sort of finds solace in her imagination um and the starry night of the of of this is not just the starry nights under the mountains, but it's the Vincent Van Gogh picture, and she has a jigsaw of that, um, which is where that comes from. So yeah, kind of kind of sort of Amelie esque, but in a much rawer and personal way. It's a it's a it's a wonderful film um, that deserves to be seen by a lot more people. And now we enter the top ten. Um, 
Number 10 is a film that wasn't on this list until about an hour ago when I realised why the hell isn't it on my list? And I (laughs) thought it might be on yours, Elwood. This is a 2002 film by Hideo Nakata based on a book by Koji Suzuki. And no, it's not Ring, it's Dark Water. Um, (laughs) Dark Water is, to my mind, one of the finest... I don't want to call it a horror film, but sort of the ghost stories that's come out of Japan, a country which makes great ghost stories. Um, It's got a creepy and, let's face it, moist and wet atmosphere going on. It's a brilliant realisation of the original novel. Um, Very little happens in it apart from just pure atmosphere. It has a flaw. Um, the final scare is pretty naff, but <laughs> to say the least. But on the other hand, it's not just a sto- it's not just a ghost story. It's just not not just a, a, a scary story or a creepy story. It's a story about being a parent, about what that means, um, about looking after a child and the sacrifices you have to make to do so. Um, and obviously in a country like Japan where divorce is still somewhat stigmatized, it has those layers as well. Um, I kind of enjoyed the, um, the remake done by Walter Sales a couple of years later, starring Jennifer Connelly. Um, but that took the story in a completely different direction. The 2002 Japanese original is one of the best horror films ever, in my opinion. Yeah, um, Dark Water, as you said, directed by uh, Hido Nakata, who I think is going to be best known for directing Ringu. Uh, Ringu, like Dark Water, didn't make my list, and while it certainly hasn't been influential, especially as it was sort of like a key film in that sort of early sort of boom of uh, J horror. Um, this, I don't know what it is about this this film. I mean, I enjoy it certainly. I think it's well worth checking out, but it's not one that I find myself constantly returning to and I think that was obviously going to be one of the key credentials of like when I was put the 10 to 5 together it's like what other films do I come back to and Dot Water is one that I I saw it, I've seen it a couple of times and I've enjoyed it the times that I've seen it it's just doesn't hold anything there to make it sort of into that regular rotation um, I think a lot of it has also to do with the ending which I don't like um, it's it, it didn't make a huge amount of sense so I don't know if it's the same for yourself, though, Stephen, but I just didn't, didn't like how they ended. In the, in the sense that she sacrificed herself to look after the ghost child rather than look after her own living child. Yeah, spoiler alert. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. <laughs> um, you can bleep that out if you want, but I, I'm, I'd be very surprised if anyone who's listened to this podcast has never seen Dark Water. Um, um, but no, Hitomi Kuroki is just really phenomenal. This woman whose own sort of psyche is... It's been put into great strain for her job. She was serving as an editor for this, um, for a publishing company, and just like the fact that she was like forced to deal with these like violent, uh, fiction and sort of thrillers just sent her a little unhinged. So, uh, there's definitely a lot of interesting themes, and it goes a lot deeper than just sort of like your standard sort of ghost story. Um, we obviously have got the comparisons as well to the death of, uh, Lisa Lamb, whose mysterious death mirrored a lot of the events of this film, uh, when her body was uh, discovered in the water tank, much like uh, a key sort of element of Dark Water. So it's got that going for it as well. 
It, in, indeed it has. Um, and also, exactly the same plot is ripped off from a Korean horror movie called The Cat, believe it or not, which has exactly the same payoff, bizarrely. Anyway, so that's Dark Water. Number nine is a film which I have spoken about plenty, but we've never really spoken about. I always happen to know it's one of um, it's one of Zoe's favourites as well. And this is um, Kiyoshi Kurosawa. So I've got the other Kurosawa in. Um, it's his film Pulse or Cairo. Um, again, I'm loath to call this a horror film. It's another ghost film. I again remember watching this for the first time and I'd never seen anything like it. Um, I don't want to talk about the remakes, although we have done in the past <laughs> on, in, 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 another, in another place at another time. Um, I was torn on whether of which of uh, Kurosawa's movies to choose, whether the Cure, um, which is like a serial killer drama with a bit of weirdness going on or this one but i think this one i chose it's hard to explain um fundamentally ghosts start returning from wherever they are using it and it's kind of almost two stories in one um so firstly the world is starts getting invaded by ghosts but it's all very subtle and japanese and it's got a lot to say about the way technology can isolate us from other people. Um, and then it goes into a more apocalyptic mode and it really escalates up over the, uh, over, over the course of the film. It's, 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 it, it's an art film. I'm not going to lie. Um, Kurosawa really is a, he's an, he's an arty farty kind of guy. I'm, I, th- th- there's no, there's no denying that, but, um, this watching this film is an experience and I'm so happy that I think it was Arrow put a version out on DVD and Blu-ray last year and they did Cure as well not last year a couple of years ago and to have two of my favorite Kurosawa films on a on a decent copy because my old Japanese versions were almost unwatchable <laughs> um right so that's rambling about Cairo. Number eight, I'll go back to what I know, um, Korean romantic dramas. Um, and I think several people may already know about Il Mare, um from the year 2000. It stars yet again one of my favourite actresses, Jun Ji Hyun, who you might remember I talked about her in Windstruck. Um, it's another time travel story. <laughs> Oh, dearie me. Um, and was remade into a Sandra Bullock, you know, Reeves load of nonsense. Forget about that. This is way better. Um, basically, a guy called, um, I can't remember his name, doesn't matter. Um, he's played by um, Lee Jung, 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 Lee Jung Jae. Um, he moves into this amazing modernist house that he's built because he's an architect um, he's everything George Costanza would like to be. And, and he has a letterbox outside and he keeps receiving posts for somebody who lived there before. Um, he then sort of finds out that he can talk to the person that's sending him by sending them letters back. And after a little while, they realize she's two years in the future. Yeah. He's in the past. That's right. Cause that, that's how it, that's it works out. So they basically communicate and fall in love through letters 
whilst living in two separate times. Um, we do eventually, they try and meet and they don't, but there's more to it going on. Not only is it a love story, but actually there comes a bit of a crisis where she realises something about him and she has to try and stop it happening, even though she's two years separated from him. It's a beautiful, beautiful film with a really sort of of high conceit, i.e. sending letters through time. Um, But it does it so, so well. And it's just so enjoyable. And um, I guess it's part of that sort of that Hallyu wave of Korean cinema where people decided to make US versions of them just a bit like the film we just talked about pulse and um my sassy girl and there were a couple of others as well where uh, into the mirror so mirrors with you know, uh with Kiefer sutherland is a, is a remake of a korean film as well um but yeah really really enjoyable and this is probably sort of the a film that people that know me would probably identify as a film that i knew was going to be on this list along with our film at number seven which Elwood's going to shame me because I forgot to put it on the list. (laughs) In fact, he did shame me on Twitter. Um, I forgot to put um, this film on the list, even though we spoke about it at length in another episode of the podcast. And this is One Car Away's Chunking Express. So this is my number seven film. Um, I suppose it's two films, really. Um, The Takashi Kaneshiro gets second appearance on this list as... As the detective who is, um, or the policeman who encounters Bridget Lynn and they have a lost, a lost evening together. And then the second story with, uh, little Tony Lung and Fei Wong in which Elwood and I both fell in love with her watching this film. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's Wong Kar Wai's most, um, I would say <sighs> approachable film. Some people don't like the first story. Some people don't like the second. But most of us grow to love them both eventually. Um, it's about it's a story not just of of people and people in love, but it's a story about Hong Kong as well. It's beautifully filmed, beautifully acted, and yeah, go back and listen to our previous. I guess if you want to hear more. Yeah, Chinese uh, Express was one of my cinema shames and. There's another film coming up on the list as well, which is still a cinema shame for myself, so I may have to correct that in the upcoming episodes. But No Chunking Express is uh, it's a film that took me a couple of cracks to finally get it. And I think it's had a lot to do with that. That first story is a little off-putting, but I would say stick with it and get to the second story, because the second story is where the film sort of really comes into its own and uh, perhaps tests your love of Mamas and Papas California Dreaming. Yeah, so that is the only song that they had licensed this movie. So, yeah, that does that does that does um does does great a bit in the second half eventually. But uh, hey ho, no, Chunking uh, Express definitely one that uh, I'm glad that you included it on your list. Yeah, well, I'm glad you reminded me. <laughs> right, okay, just outside the top five now, and number six. Um, it's another director where I could have picked any one of five or six films. Um, I love the films of uh, Pang Ho Chung or Edmund Chung or Edmund Pang, sorry, as he's known. Um, he is a former screenwriter, author and now director who seems to be making a film a year. Um, he's made three films in this series, but the first film is the one I love. It's called Love and a Puff. 
and it's another film, I guess, about the city of Hong Kong um, with a romantic drama on top of it. Um, but not, it's a cat. It's a cat three romantic drama, mind you, um, for an unusual reason. Um, it's basically about a couple played by Sean Yu and Miriam Young um, who fall in love because they meet while um, smoking outside because the smoking ban has come into Hong Kong. Um, so this is based in 2010. So I think smoking ban came in a couple of years earlier so people could no longer smoke in their offices and all had to huddle outside. If you've ever been to Hong Kong, you know that most buildings are shared with about 50,000 other companies. So they, they kind of meet. She's a little bit older than him. He's a bit of a man child. She's looking for love. Um, it, the, the, the reason it's got cat three is that in Cantonese, it's filthy. They, it, it's really frank and honest and open with its language and the swearing. We kind of lose that for those of us who can't speak Cantonese, but it's um, it's just a glorious. The, the, the Pang Ho Chung just makes great films. Sean Yu is a great actor. Miriam Young's a great actress, and mixing it all together just creates this wonderful. I don't know what to call it. It's a wonderful sort of meal of a romantic drama. It's quite modern in its ways. Um, the two sequels are pretty good as well. I prefer the third film to the second film, so the relationship continues on over time. Um, the second film's more set in mainland China, but they return to Hong Kong for the third. But this first film is just wonderful, but it's about relationships. So it's about modern relationships. Um, and... It's all in the script, this one. Uh, I could pick any one of many Pang Ho Chung films, um, but this one, I think, is fully deserving in the place just outside the top five. Now, number five. I'm guessing this is your cinema, Shane Elwood. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot... I cannot believe that you have not seen Kim Ji Woon's A Tale of Two Sisters. I own it. I just no no go around to watching it because I just keep getting distracted by other shiny things. This yeah, is long. And I did I, it on the Halloween vote, but you, the listeners, all decided you wanted to talk about the whaling instead. So, and I wouldn't. Whaling was originally in my twenty-five, but it has since dropped out <laughs> um, for chunking express, maybe. Um, <laughs> So Taylor Two Sisters. Um, so uh, Kim Ji Woon is another one of the great, um, like up there with, uh, oh god, director of Old Boy. I've just got on it because I'm on Mark Chan Wook. Um, Kim Ji Woon is another one of the greats. Um, I could have picked any one of his films, but his masterpiece, and I do not use that word lightly, is A Taylor Two Sisters. It's sort of a horror film. It's certainly the highest horror film on this list. But it's more of a psychological drama, really. Um, it concerns two girls that um, one of them comes back from being in a, a sort of a, a mental asylum. The sister, the two sisters, there's a father and a evil stepmother, he says, with rabbit fingers. Um, and wacky hijinks ensue. I don't want to ruin it because I've already spoiled one film tonight and I don't want to ruin another one. The acting is superlative. The set design is amazing. The story is almost unimportant 
when you concern it with the atmosphere. There are scares, there are jump scares. In fact, there's the, the one biggest jump scare um, almost feels out of place because it's a bit cheap when you look at how gloriously lush the rest of the film is. Um, they did a, they did another American remake of this one, although bizarrely it's called The Uninvited, which is the name of another film altogether. It doesn't matter. Um, it's a very it's actually based on a very famous South Korean sort of legend, um, sort of brought to the modern day. You will watch this and you will fall in love with it, Edward, I promise you. Um, I've got three copies of it and I still, I mean, I've managed to watch it. Um, it's it, the only shame is lots of films since have ripped off its, um, its twist. And so it's a shame that you won't see it um, with a fresh mind. Um, Im Soo Young and Moon Gyun Young are both fantastic young actresses who have both grown up to bigger and better things. But this, uh, yeah, it's 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 hard for me to uh, eulogise about this more. I guess it was also one of the sort of the tartan films, wasn't it? That that was um that came over in that sort of initial sort of J horror, K horror. Yeah, it was definitely um, one that came out with uh, the Asia Extreme label, and it, it was certainly one of their their big title big titles. I mean, it's helped more by that iconic poster um, and the cover art for the box. I think that really sort of helped cement it in people's minds although I, I would certainly say it's got its fans but I would say it's sort of like a tech, second tier sort of horror film much like our point while people obviously acknowledged it I don't, it's not one that I still hear people talk about as much as perhaps they should be especially as it's rated so highly on your list when you think I could have chosen The Quiet Family um, Bittersweet Life Good, The Bad, The Weird I Saw The Devil um uh, a couple of others, uh, maybe not the last stand. Maybe his later films aren't so good. But you know, this this is a director whose output is phenomenal, and this for me is his best film. So we will resolve to sort this out before the year is out. I think <laughs> I need to get you on board with uh, Tale of Two Sisters. Okay, nearing the end now. Number four. Um. Again, anybody who knows me will not be surprised that I have a Stephen Chow film on this list. I'm a huge fan of Stephen Chow. I've got Elwood. To, we talked about um, The God of Cookery on the podcast, an early episode of the podcast. Um, I could have chosen many of Stephen Chow's films. In fact, the next review I'm going to do for my own blog is the latest Stephen Chow film. Um, the 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 actual sort of spiritual remake of this film, which is a king of comedy. Now, a lot of people think, my God, why have you chosen the king of comedy? That's not one of his greatest. That's not one of his wacky, brilliant films from the, from the nineties. Um, that, that's the, that's the kind of uh, low key one with the prostitute. And you're right. It is. It's actually the low key one with the prostitute and the weird Tarantino esque ending. But I think this is the Stephen Chow film that, comes from the heart more than any of his other films and probably informs the second half of his career better than the first half. Um, it's a sort of semi-autobiographical tale um, talking about his struggles to break into filmmaking. At the same time, he meets a prostitute played by Cecilia Chung in her first role, becoming one of the latest singles. Um, and... 
I just think it's charming and witty and funny and it's got all the key elements in terms of musical cues and the love of Bruce Lee and all the other sorts of things that Stephen Chow likes to put in the films of this era. But there's a maturity to it that only came here. So I think when we talked about God of Cookery and God of Cookery, things took a really dark turn. Sort of just at the end of the second act. And a lot of people say, oh, that's where he changed. Well, for me, this is this is where he changed. This is where our maturity came in. And. Recently, he's just done a, a new version of it with made an actress and gender swapped it. And, and I really enjoyed New King of Comedy. But this this one to me is is a classic. And because it isn't so wacky and so full of wordplay and all those things that us Westerns don't understand. Again, I think I chose it as almost as a gateway film. I could have been more obvious. I could have maybe chosen one of the Monkey King films. I could have maybe chosen from Beijing with Love, which I think probably has a lot of resonance with Western viewers. But this one's just the best film. Uh, number three. An animated film for a guy who doesn't watch animated films. Um, so we spoke about a bit a bit about this on your list, Elwood. Um, I probably love four or five studio ghibli films ghibli films my favorite however is my neighbor totoro um i love this film i love its simplicity i love the fact that my daughter my youngest daughter adores this film and we watch it together regularly when i say youngest she's 17 now but we have spent we have spent many years enjoying totoro enjoying um the visuals of it, the, the simple story. Um, yes, other Ghibli films are probably more complicated, have better animation, are more groundbreaking, but there's something basic and childish and warming and cuddly about <laughs> Totoro. It's, uh, my name is Totoro. It's, it's, the problem I have is I just don't like the story. I like all the character design, and certainly it's a very iconic creation, Totoro. I mean, it's the company mascot of all things, and there's just other films in the Give Me Back Castle I, I would put way above this. And I know people out there who absolutely adore Totoro and fully explains why he's in Toy Story from three onwards. So he's definitely got his place in the... No, the 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 Ghibli Hall of Fame. It's just there's other films in there that I just would prefer to watch above this. And yeah, I think if you go, if you want cute, cuddly critters, I think in the in the in the catalogue. I mean, I'd just rather watch Pompoko than My Neighbor Totoro. But no, that's me. I think I became Your too mileage too might vary. <laughs> I think maybe you did. I think this one just speaks to the child in it's, me. I mean, it's it, a bitter adult. And that's what <laughs> <and whimsy. laughs> yeah, it, it is high on whimsy. I know, I know what you're saying. Um, the toss-up was really the, the the other two Ghibli films which could have got in here are Spirited Away, but I thought that was a bit obvious um, yeah. because that had such an impact in the West. Um, but I do love it. And the other one was, um, I think it's called Only Yesterday, which is a very different film. Um, again, a much more realistic film uh, about a, a pining for a past, about nostalgia. Um, but has a scene with a with a with a pineapple in it that um, makes me go a bit misty eyed still. 
Um, but yeah, my neighbor Totoro is my number three. My number one and my number two, like you, mate, I could have probably switched around. I think, though, my number two is going to be my sassy girl. Now, I have um, alluded to this many times <laughs> on the podcast. I've talked about it a lot. I've talked about it several times on this on this podcast. So it's the third film starring um, uh, Jun Ji Hyun. It's the second film by Kwak Jo Young, and it is a film which I am choosing for two reasons. The first reason is I love it, um, and the second reason is it is responsible for Korean cinema breaking out of Korea and going across Asia and potentially across to the West as well. But the, 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 I talk about the Hallyu, the, 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 the Korean wave of culture not just in cinema but in music which is you know is even stronger today than when this film came out in 2001 um it's made stars of both Jun ji hyun and cha taehan um but it's also a bit weird so it's a it's a oh did i not mention it's a romantic comedy um, <laughs> but it's a bit weird um so cha taehan's character meets this um, young girl, she's absolutely rat ass drunk and she vomits all over him. Um, they have some adventures together and a bond seems to form between the two, but they never quite get it on. And she says really cryptic things and she's really horrible to him and mean to him. And you think, what the hell is he, um, interested in this girl for other than that she's drop dead gorgeous, but she's damaged goods. And as the film progresses, we find out what is really going on. Um, it's got moments of hilarity. The music is fantastic. Junji Hyun is amazing and probably broke a million hearts across <coughs> Asia. The only downside with My Sashi Girl is that the, 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 the Western version of the DVD, which you can get, um, is it the Western version? Maybe it's the only version. Um, the version I have, well, the, the main version I have, I have a special edition which doesn't have this problem. The, uh, the, the English subtitles are um, audio description. So it doesn't just tell you what they're saying, it tells you what they're doing, um, which does not only fills the screen up with text, but it's a bit like you don't say. Obviously, audio description has a very important place for people who need it, but not just for rank and file people like me. Um, I'm actually kind of fond of the American remake as well, starring Alicia Cuthbert, but it's a it's a 10% of the film that this one is. I don't think you've ever seen it, have you, um, Elwood? I've seen the, seen, the, seen the remake, but I've not seen the, <laughs> seen, the, seen the original, no. Another one for us to sort out. Maybe we'll get Zoe along for that one and have another, <laughs> another one. Okay, so drum roll, please. At number one, um, it had to be another one Carl Wai film. It had to be the film I've literally written a magazine article about, about being the gateway to Asian cinema. And it's one Carl Wai's In the Mood for Love, which to my mind is the most beautiful thing ever put to celluloid um, in terms of its look, in terms of the outfits, in terms of the style on show. Um, you've got Tony Lung, you've got Maggie Chung, who are two of my favourite actors and actresses 
Yeah, that's the right order. Um, the soundtrack is mesmerizing. The cinematography by Christopher Doyle is fantastic. Um, Maggie Chung wears these dresses which are just to die for. And I don't want to sound like an episode of RuPaul's Drag Race now, doesn't it? But um, it's 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 visually stunning. But at the same time, it is quite highbrow and it has got some sort of high concept conceits. The conceit is these two people have met. Um, their partners are both having an affair with each other and they meet and they don't really have an affair with each other in revenge, but they kind of enact the affair that their partners are having it's kind of layers of weird mm. but they both do fall in love through this this closeness that they achieve through their partner's infidelity but because it's set when it's set nothing can happen um i'm sure you've seen it elwood i have i mean i appreciate wonka while making the science sci-fi movie i mean this is a reality where someone cheats on maggie chung I think if you ask anyone and have anyone there, that's not the most plausible plots. But yeah, it's the uh, it's a really some trust. Well, movie. Remember, we never see we never see the partners, <coughs> the 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 the, in, the um the infidelity partners. So we don't. Might somebody even more amazing than Maggie Chung in a Queen Po Jess? I don't. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. It, this is this is ridiculous. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I think the Wonka Wise filmography. I think this is definitely a good one to to start with, uh, if not the best of the filmography. It's which can I don't know. With the filmography is so varied. I mean, you obviously got things such as like Ashes of Time on there, which is pretty revered. You've got the follow up to and the movie follow up twenty forty six, which is also pretty interesting to see. And you've obviously got Chunking Express, which you mentioned already, but it's a bit further down the list. So. Is this the high watermark for uh, one KY? It depends on what day of the week it is. Sometimes it's Chunking Express, sometimes it's in the mood for love. So Ashes of Time and some of his earlier films are fine, but I can't personally connect to them. But I can appreciate the art. I actually kind of like the stuff he did with Jeff Lau, the ridiculous um, <laughs> years comedies things like um, Eagle Shooting Heroes, which is another joyous thing but it's not technically a one car away film i have no love for 2046 at all although it is a pseudo sequel to this yeah i really didn't like the grandmaster um although we have linked that with wuxia and or dragon or whatever we're calling it um so for me i could just listen to this film or watch it with the sound off and I would be as entranced by it. But I do understand people who couldn't connect with it as well. But I don't care. Yeah, always a good attitude, huh? <laughs> and that's my list. So I did say at the beginning, I think there's some there's a huge omission that we've both made. But it's probably genuine, but surprising. We haven't picked one Shaw Brothers film. No, we haven't. I feel that in the point when it comes to Shaw Brothers, not only are the films so numerous and cover so many different genres, it's it's very mood dependent where your mind is when it comes to Shaw Brothers movies, and the fact that there's so much sort of crossover, but there are certainly some no plenty of noteworthy examples within the Shaw Brothers filmography. I mean, you've obviously got things such as like 36 Chamber of Shaolin, which would, if we were going past the 25 picks on my list, I would have really included that. 
and just obviously like custom of mine for it. I mean, you can go to like deeper cuts like there. We make a coffee with uh, the sexy killer, which is also kind of fun. Yeah, again, it's just so mood dependent when it comes to the the Shaw Brothers that I, I, I happen to be I in the thought, mood of at the time. So the reason I thought it was interesting was is that you know as I spoke about before, the reason I started writing about Asian cinema and then like latterly podcasting about it is that I wanted to show there was more to life than kung fu movies and ghost girls yeah. now i haven't been able to discount ghost girls completely because i picked dark water but i have and both of us have avoided i guess we have some samurai films and you've got the you had the bruce lee film didn't you um yeah and where the where the dragon and while again this is the, the thing while these while certainly martial arts have obviously um, been represented in in the list um I think if we were obviously going past the past the fifty mark, then you're going to see things like Shaw Brothers start to come in. You're going to see a lot more sort of like the niche martial arts films, and certainly a lot of like like the Ringo Lamb movies um, start to appear. So I think this is really just sort of like scratching the surface. I mean, from here we can certainly go a lot deeper. And I think when we go to the next lot of fifty, so we um, at a on a future future point we'll do the we do our, our follow-up 50, and we'll be interested to see what that brings up. Once we've obviously, like, eliminated this sort of top layer of, like, while they're obviously, I wouldn't say they're, like, obvious, like, top ones, are certainly the films that, you know, we would t- return to time and time again. It's sort of when we get to those sort of more niche picks, the ones which the almost rants. Um, I think that's going to be an interesting list to see what would also be on that list and, and uh, what would actually make up a full 100 list so I think that's certainly something we'll, we'll look at in a future episode a bit further down the line and uh, just uh, see, see what uh, is sort of hiding under this sort of like surface level and see what, what uh, we uncover the deeper we sort of go into our sort of preferred uh, filmographies. Yeah I mean I also I think we've only picked films from Hong Kong, China Taiwan, South Korea and Japan. I think oh, I've picked one from Thailand, haven't I? Yes. Um, that surprised me. So I guess this, you know, I guess our audience remember that this list was a reaction to that BBC World Cinema Critics list, um, where we felt it was a bit highbrow and a bit, um, a bit obvious in places. We there was some more the there was the general consensus that it was a lot of sort of. It was sort of a lot of obvious titles, and at the same time, there was a lot of titles that were on there for their artistic merits, rather than things that you would you enjoy know, choose to choose to watch as a you know regular Joe film goer. Um, yes, while Seven Samurai is great and all, it's also a three hour plus movie, and there's a lot. As we said already, I mean, the fact that were, what, Old Boy was the only only mention. Of like the Vengeance trilogy on there, that there was nothing else in the part show filmography. There was, it just as I said, there was a lot of sort of art house sort of movies, a lot of highbrow cinema in there. And I think this is the often obvious misconception when we talk about foreign cinema. It's the fact that if you say you're into foreign cinema, a lot of people think that those are the sort of movies you're into. That you know, you can't uh, be possibly finding your sort of like uh, genre sort of fix in a different language. And, you know, well, obviously there's people out there who are obsessed, obsessed over, like, 80s and 70s horror, and myself, it was always, like, you know, 
the gung-fu movies of John Woo or, like, the Shaw Brothers martial arts movies. These were sort of, like, the films that came up with and, like, kaiju movies. I mean, there was no kaiju movies on the BBC list, which I find absolutely astounding, but at the same time, in the covering world cinema. And, yeah, I feel that we've gone some way to, to write in, write in, restoring the balance slightly. I think between the pair of us, we've got some action, we've got some comedy, we've got some romance, we've got some... We've we, we, we got crowd-pleasers. A few highbrow ones from both of us. Yeah, you, you, you picked a Kurosawa. Um, yeah, um, I picked a, at the same time, I picked Keiji Mushu. I didn't pick, like, Throne of Blood or Hidden Fortress or no, something like that. Of, it's, it's, of course, uh, but I feel... Do you, do you feel happy with the 50, though? I'm happy with the 50. I mean, it's always exciting, the fact that you know, while we've got this 50, there's still stuff for me to hunt out, which is always nice. I feel that it's a very, that we could put, put this list out there, and I think that if you're new to Asian cinema especially, that you could work your way with this list and have a good grounding and have an idea of where you would want to go, what you would find stuff that you enjoy, and obviously build on it from there. Um, to answer your question in a short way, yes, I'm happy with what we've <laughs> achieved over the, the two lists, and Certainly, I would love to obviously anyone who's obviously listening to you know let us know the films which make your list. Anything that we've missed out that you feel we should have included. It's always good to hear what what those sort of titles are, and uh, definitely promote some discussion on Asian cinema, which is always welcome. So, you know, let us know what makes your list. Um, but no, thank you, obviously, Stephen, for running down your twenty-five. You will obviously be able to find a full episode, a full uh, fifty titles list, which is on our blog which is asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com. Um, and again, if you're listening to us on Podomatic or iTunes or Spotify, wherever you happen to listen to us, please can you hit the uh, ratings button, you know, maybe click the subscribe button, because it all helps raise the show's profile and gets us out there. And it, uh, It's always good to obviously expand the reach of the show, and uh, we obviously appreciate all, everyone who's listened and supported and shared the show so far, and hope you continue to enjoy Enjoy the shows that we're putting out there. Um, as always, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we also have the Instagram feed as well. So, if you haven't done already, please come like us on there and uh, keep yourself up to date. We try to post interesting news articles and interesting photos and things on the pages, so it's not just updates. And when we have shows coming out, we do try to put some turn into a little bit of a news hub and a cultural melting pot there. So, definitely uh, give it a like. While we're on the subject of podcasts as well, we also have to uh, give a shout-out to our regular co-host and uh, friend of the show, Zoe, uh, a.k.a. Zoboa Shotgun, who's just launched her own podcast, uh, the Zoboa Shotgun podcast, talking about the history of extreme cinema, in particular the origins of uh, the genre, and she's going to be exploring that further and uh, talking about some of her favourite films as well. So definitely want to check out if you like your cinema on the slightly more grotesque and extreme side it's uh, definitely an interesting show to uh, give a listen to as well so but um, thank you again for listening and uh, have you got anything you want to promote there Stephen? Oh I suppose you could check out my um, my sister podcast to this show which is where I look at world cinema mostly European but I've, I've flitted around the Middle East and I'll be going to Australia soon. Um, little bite-sized pieces, couple of films each episode, just trying to 
moisten your palates to uh, to explore subtitle films, and that's the Guelo Ramblings World Tour. Um, I think I can't remember how many episodes I'm in now. Um, the next one will be one about a couple of German films starring Bruno Gantz. So you should better guess what they are if you know your German cinema. Um, and in the following episode. I'm going to make Edward very happy and go to Russia. And I bet he can't guess who I'm going to watch. <laughs> but <laughs> There's yes, some good <laughs> ways you can go with that and some very bad ways you can go with that. Yeah, but it might all be with the same, same, same director. Anyway, I've got, a, I've got a heavy week of uh, Russian film watching ahead of me. But yes, the whole point is it's a little 15 minute little minute, a little, little, little 15 minute shows. Um, so it shouldn't take up too much of your time and hopefully it gets people interested. So that's it, I think, for my self-promotion. Awesome. Um, but uh, again, this uh, wraps up uh, our bonus episodes. I uh, hope you've enjoyed both halves and seen us compile the 50. Uh, we will obviously be back next time with our regular programming as we're going to be looking at the eye. And uh, yeah, it should uh, hope to be a, a fun time with that as well. But uh, until next time, thank you as always to my co-host Stephen. Thank you for having me and thank you for listening. And uh, this is Will John signing off for an edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club and wishing you all a very good night. Hey! 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 Yo,